always worried when somebody said they're going to give a short talk. Okay. <laughs> I hope it won't be too long. But uh, Great to be here, isn't it? And uh, I've got the privilege of um, just bringing some thoughts from, from the Word of God. Um, this is the second sermon in a, a new series that we've started based on Paul's letter to the church at Rome. Last week, Steve gave an excellent introduction and put an outline of the, the letter on the screen. And it's all about the gospel. Now, the gospel can, for some people, be a music genre, can't it? A, a category of music. Um, but the word gospel means the proclamation or the announcement of good news. Um, in ancient times, when an emperor won a decisive battle, before he left the battlefield, he would send heralds into the city to announce the victory. And this is the, the context of this. It's a victory uh, that God uh, has announced. Uh, so that's what the gospel is. It's not good advice to be followed. It's an announcement of what God has done. It's not a philosophy or, nor a concept, but it's about what God has done for us in his son, Jesus. You could say that Jesus is the gospel, and the gospel is Jesus because it's all about him. It's all about him. And through this letter, Paul sets out how wonderful the gospel is in reconciling people to God. That's making people right with God, making people in a right standing with God. But he also makes it abundantly clear why all people everywhere need the gospel. So we put the slide up, Paul, please. So this, this message is in two parts. Um, the first half is about Paul being eager to visit this church in Rome. And the reason why he wants to visit them is to encourage them. And the second part is about Paul's confidence in the gospel to make people right with God and transform their lives. So um, this book of Romans, where uh, those of us that are preaching, we're getting some help from a book by uh, a preacher called Tim Keller in his book, Romans for You. And I quote one or two things from him as we go. So let's read the passage, which is Romans chapter 1 and verses 8 to 16. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. And I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation 
to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Father God, we ask you, just show us the good things that you have in this letter that Paul has written to these Christians in Rome. Lord, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Firstly then, it's Paul's eagerness to visit the church. He's never been to the church, but he's heard a lot about them. He's heard the news of their faith, and it's travelled far and wide. And as he does for all the churches, he prays for them. Even those he's never met, he's praying for them. And on this occasion, he's particularly praying that he may be able to visit them. Now, Paul was a church planter. What we mean by that is that it was Paul's delight to go everywhere where Jesus was not known, to preach the gospel, make disciples, build them into the local church, establish that church, and then move on. So why spend time visiting a church that was obviously doing so well? The overall reason was encouragement. He knew how important it was for Christians, even well-established ones, to receive encouragement. Living the Christian life is, can, in a hostile world can have its own discouragements. But Paul is concerned that the church should be a place of encouragement. And in verse 11, he tells them the first way he wants to encourage them. He says, I want to impart to you a spiritual gift to strengthen you. Now, if you know anything of Paul's teaching about the church, particularly in his first letter to the church at Corinth, you'll know that he likens the church to a human body with all its parts working together. And that's how the members of the church are. But he also talks about Christians being filled with the Holy Spirit. Each one being filled with the Holy Spirit and having gifts of the Holy Spirit so that they can contribute in the church, uh, take part in worship and also minister to people in the world. Now what Paul says here sounds like he wants to give them another spiritual gift. But there are two reasons why this is unlikely to be what is meant here. Firstly, it is the Holy Spirit who gives gifts. They are gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, and it's the context of mutual encouragement suggests that it's not about him trying to give them a gift. I think what he's saying here is he wants to be among them so he can use his spiritual gifts of preaching and teaching and pastoring to build these people up, to strengthen them, to encourage them, so that they would benefit from his gift. So in a sense, he's saying he wants to impart the outworking of his gift. Paul, of course, carried much authority, having been commissioned by the risen Christ to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, uh, and it would only be natural if he was visiting the church at Rome and that he would do most of the encouraging. It's like if we have a visiting preacher, perhaps over a weekend, we want that person to um, be exposed to the church as much as possible. But what we see here is that it is intention that the traffic should be two-way, two-way traffic. So it's not the big man Paul doing all the encouragement as if he had no need, but he was expecting to receive as much as he gave. And he tells them how it will happen by the mutual sharing of faith. So what does that mean? Well, to cut a long story short, it's what we've been doing this morning. It's about giving our testimony and sharing what God has been doing in our lives. 
and we've, we've had a loss of that recently, praise God. We, a few weeks back, we had three other people being baptised and they gave their testimony. We had the young people come back um, from New Day and, and they were telling how God had impacted their lives and Adrian gave a testimony as to how God had healed him. So um, these things are such a great encouragement when we hear what God is doing in the lives of others. So when we give our testimony and when we hear someone's testimony, it actually confirms the truth of the gospel to us. What it does is it tells us it works. We know that it's impacted us, but it's still working in the lives of people. Even today, 2,000 years on, this gospel is still able to transform people's lives. And uh, I, I find it like a shot in the arm when I hear people give their testimony. And I'm usually doing this, you know, uh, surreptitiously wiping the tears away because I'm just so excited. Last week, we had a testimony from Eileen. Um, David had lost his wedding ring. But they prayed, they asked God to, to show them where it was. They went back to the, the, the downs where they were sitting and very quickly they found this wedding ring. That was such an encouragement to us. So let's continue to share our story uh, with those in the church and those outside the church. So Paul was concerned that the church should be a place of encouragement. And we should too. We want this place to be one where people come and encouragement. His emphasis was on sharing our faith. All right? But let me broaden this to include another way that we can all participate in encouraging. So one way of encouraging is by expressing appreciation to others, by a word of thanks. For example, when you consider all that goes on here on a Sunday morning, all the activities that go on, the seen and the unseen, it's an opportunity now and again to just give a thanks to people who are serving us, and um, even the smallest things. And it's, it's not good enough to say, well, they're only doing their job. No, it's good to give thanks. It can be so helpful. And just now and again, going up to someone who faithfully attends week by week and telling them how their presence encourages you. So I can do it now because I've got the mic and I've got everything and I look across here and let me say I am encouraged so much by the fact that so many of you come week after week faithfully um, attending, serving, doing all those things. Thank you. I am encouraged. Thank you very much. Um, at, at, um, at, at one time, um, you used to see road sweepers around the town. Do you remember them? With a barrow, flaps at the end and bins inside and a broom. All right. Here's a job that lacks prestige, if ever there was one. Isn't it? And um, I tried, whenever I passed them, uh, to go up to them and say, I just want to say thank you for keeping our streets clean. Thank you for maintaining the hygiene of, of our city. I really appreciate it. I hope they were encouraged. But what I found was I was encouraged by saying that to them. I just felt encouraged. I didn't feel pride. I just felt encouraged by doing that. And so uh, it's so helpful. Now I know um, humility is a Christian virtue and you know, we're all striving for hu humility. But don't feel bad when somebody thanks you. Right? Feeling that it's spiritual to shun their praise. Let's enjoy the encouragement. Right? 
Um, there's a story told of a pianist, sorry, of a person who went up to the pianist at the end of a church service and he said, to him, I just want to say how much your piano playing has blessed me. I just felt as you played, I felt lifted up in the presence of God. And the pianist said, but it wasn't me, it was the Lord. And the other person said, well, I'm convinced I saw your fingers moving. <laughs> so, so let's receive people's thanks as a gift from God. All right, It's a gift from God. After talking about mutual encouragement, Paul turns to the subject of harvest in verse 13. Paul wants his visit to achieve something. Right? He wants there to be fruit from his visit. As he teaches and shares the word of God, he expects that it will cause them to grow in their faith, that they will grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and become more mature. And one of the marks of maturity is that they will be active in sharing their faith with people outside the church. That's why he talks about a harvest among the Gentiles. In this case, they are representing non-believers. And, and that's to share the gospel with, with them as well as those in the church. Verse 14, Paul says he is obligated to different groups of people. He lists these different groups. And I think all he's saying is, I am obligated to all types of people. I'm all obligated to everybody. So what does he mean here? Well, obligated can mean indebted. And yet Paul has never met the church at Rome, let alone the, the total population of Rome. So how, how does he feel in debt to them? And this is one of the um, illustrations that Tim Keller uses. You may um, lend me £100. Until I pay it back to you, I'm indebted to you. We understand that, don't we? But you may, you may give me £100 to pass on to somebody else. And I am indebted to that person until I pass on the money to them. And that's the sense in which Paul is obligated or indebted. Right? He's indebted to everyone everywhere. God has shared the gospel with him, but also commissioned him to take that gospel into the world and to share it with others. So Paul owes people the gospel. And the same is true of us. If God has shared the gospel with us, then we are in some ways obligated to share that because it's been given to us, not to keep to ourselves, but to pass on to others. We're obligated, we're indebted to others until we pass it on. And then he says in verse 15, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Hang on a minute, he's writing to people who are already Christians and who have a widely acclaimed reputation for living out the Christian life, for living out their faith. Isn't the gospel all about how to be a Christian? So why do these people need the gospel? Well, the gospel is indeed about salvation, about becoming a Christian, uh, and we'll see that in the next verse. But it's also the foundation for Christian living, for the Christian life. And it needs to be applied in every aspect of our life, at every stage of the journey. The gospel has something to say to our lives, the detail of our lives. And we'll see about that in the, in the weeks to come. You see, the gospel uh, is so wonderful, so powerful, that through it, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what Peter says in his second letter, again in the New Testament. 
God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that's in the gospel. But then come to verse 16, and Paul says something rather strange here. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. I hope you've seen in what I'm saying and, and what we've been sharing this morning that the gospel is a proclamation of good news. It's a wonderful expression of God's love for his world. So why on earth would Paul think that somebody might be ashamed of the gospel? Well, another way of thinking of the word ashamed is to be offended. So how is it that the gospel is offensive? It's because the gospel is an affront to our pride. Absolute affront to our pride, our self-sufficiency, and most particularly in our trust in ourselves to be right with God. To be able to stand before God on the day of judgment and not be condemned. The gospel tells us that you can't do that on your own. You can't get there on your own. The gospel not only in includes good news, but also the bad news about our human condition before God, which is so offensive to us. You know, we get these jokes, don't we? The good news, bad news jokes. And the person is asked, what do you want first? Well, we, we really need the bad news before we can appreciate the good news. If we don't accept the verdict of the bad news because we're offended, then the gospel will lose its power. Imagine that you're swimming in a fast-flowing river, all right? But you're a very strong swimmer and you're doing well and you're in control. You know exactly what's going on. You know with a few strokes you can, you can reach the bank and you're doing fine and the river looks fine up ahead. And okay. Then suddenly there's someone on the bank waving and shouting at you and saying, stop, stop, you're in danger. There's a weir that you can't see but there's a weir there and you'll never survive it but you're convinced, you're fine. But this person is it's intent on saving you, so they throw a life belt out to you. It's got a lump of rope attached to it, and it almost hits you, and you push it to one side, and you think, no, I'm fine. You see, that life belt should have been good news, uh, but it was, in fact, an unwelcome, offensive uh, distraction. There are three points that Tim Keller makes to illustrate why the gospel is likely to be offensive. I'll just read them to you. He says, The gospel, by telling us that our salvation is free and undeserved, is really insulting. It tells us that we are such spiritual failures that the only way to gain salvation is for it to be a complete gift. This offends moral and religious people who think that their decency gives them an advantage over the less moral people. The second point. The gospel is also really insulting by telling us that Jesus died for us. It tells us that we were so wicked that only the death of God's Son could save us. And then thirdly, the gospel by telling us that trying to be good and spiritual isn't enough, thereby insists that no good person will be saved, but only those who come to God through Jesus. This offends the modern notion that any nice person anywhere can find God in his or own way. Later in the book of Romans, 
Paul tells us that all people everywhere all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. We've all missed God's best for our lives. He also says that the consequence of this is death, both physical and spiritual. There's no exception because it includes the religious and the pious, the morally upright as well as the immoral and the rogues of this world. Now sin is not a very popular word, is it? And I think there's a lot of misunderstandings as to what it actually means. But it's the word that the Bible uses to describe those things which spoil and pollute our lives and separate us from God. And as we heard earlier from Steve, it also includes not just our actions, but our thoughts as well. Most of us can make a fairly good showing outwardly, but if we look inwardly, we know there are things that we wouldn't want other people to know. I would be horrified if you put some of my thoughts up on this screen, all right? Okay, I'd, I want to go away and hide. I would want to go away and hide, okay? God knows them, and he's done something about it. He's done something about it. So, um, that's the bad news, all right? We have all sinned. But then Paul goes on to say um, that the free gift of God is eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. And again, we've heard before, it has to be a free gift because we can do nothing about our condition ourselves. And you know, even if we get to a point where we understand that we're morally bankrupt and, and we've fallen far short of God's standards and we suddenly decide that I'm going to clean up my life from now on, I'm going to live differently. We have to say, what about the past? How do we deal with the past? You know, how do we de deal with those things that when we think about them, you know, we are just devastated by the things that have happened to us and the things that we have done in the past. So, um, you know, this is, the, this is the gospel, the good news. And in it, God offers us forgiveness and cleansing from the past, for, for the past, as well as the gift of eternal life for the future. So why is Paul not ashamed or offended by the gospel? Because he has experienced the gospel's power. If you know anything about Paul, he was a Jewish leader, a Pharisee, he was on the top of his league and he was on his way to Damascus uh, with letters from the elders to put Christians in prison. He thought he was doing God a favour by persecuting Christians. But he met Jesus on the Damascus road and his life was completely turned around. And from being a Christian hater, he became Christianity's greatest advocate. He became a champion uh, for Jesus. And so that's, that's so wonderful. All right? That's so wonderful. So that's why he's not ashamed, because the gospel isn't about power, it is power. When the gospel is preached, when the good news about Jesus is shared, um, there is power to change minds and hearts and perspective on life and even our relationships with other people. Most of all, it is powerful because it does what no power on earth, other power on earth could do. It can save us. It can deal with our past and put us in a right relationship with God and guarantee us a place in the kingdom of God forever.
So who is it for? Who is this good news for? Paul says it's for everyone. If you remember the scripture, it's for everyone. The only limit is on our response because he says it's for everyone who believes. And you might say, well, is that all we have to do? Just believe. Well, in a sense, yes. You say, well, surely I can add something. God, God will take some of my good stuff and mix it in and that will be the reason I am saved. No, it is because you believe. But we have to understand what this belief is. Actually, it's a transfer of trust. In, previously, we trusted ourselves. We said, I can do it, I can make it on my own. I'll do it my way. Okay? And we now take that trust and we place it on Jesus. We acknowledge that when Jesus died on the cross, that he was taking the punishment for my sin and for your sin. He was taking the punishment for the sin of the world so that we could be free and not be punished. That we could go free and receive eternal life. And so we transfer our trust from ourselves. We don't trust ourselves anymore. We don't look to ourselves, but we look to God and what he has done uh, for us in Jesus. It's a transfer of trust. I'm going to close now. I'm going to just summarise. Let us make our gatherings on Sunday and during the week times of encouragement for all. Let us not be slow in showing appreciation to others. And let's embrace the whole gospel, the bad news, as well as the good news. And it can be expressed like this. This is taking some of Tim Keller's words. In the gospel, we see that we are far more wicked than we could ever imagine. So wicked that it took the death of the, the Son of God, Jesus, to deal with our wickedness. But also, most gloriously, we see that in the gospel, we are loved more than we could imagine. So loved that God was prepared to sacrifice his own son so that we might have eternal life. Let me quote the, perhaps the most famous verse in the New Testament. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In giving his son, he's giving him up to die, to be a sacrifice, to die in our place. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I pray that this morning, if you've not acknowledged the bad news, that you'll do that this morning and that you'll be, want to receive the blessing of the good news, receiving Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Thank you. Yeah. Shall we stand? Let's pray.